known as a Bonnie and Clyde War on the World. Uh, that was meant to be provocative. So explain what I mean by that. Um, in the, in the um, wasn't that Wikipedia, that Mirabai article? Is that Wikipedia? So to show you how Wikipedia is you know, obviously imperfect, and so I want to point something out, one sort of glaring imperfection. Uh, toward the end of that article, uh, whoever wrote that, wrote, uh, Mirabai belongs to the Saguna class of worshippers of Brahman. So put on your Vedanta cap again. Uh, Guna is qualities like uh, being a person, or happiness, or distress, shapes, textures, just qualities. Goodness and evil. And so, sa in Sanskrit is with, and nir means without, like in nirvana. So these two positions, the big, the great Vedanta divide was nir, nirguna versus saguna. Does Brahman, does the absolute truth ultimately have qualities, like being personal, even having a body, uh, having activities in Brahman, like for example, we as individual souls, that would be a quality, individuality versus a collectivity. Or, so this is Ramanuja, Saguna, and, and other people like Ramanuja, and this is Shankara and his gang. Uh, then in Brahman, there are ultimately no qualities. So if you see qualities in Brahman, you need to put on your 3D glasses or take them off or something, but you need to look at it again. And you'll see actually it's just Brahman, no qualities, no people, no souls, no God, just Brahman. Just wall-to-wall Brahman. So, so, so Mirabai belongs to the Saguna class of worshippers, obviously because she's worshipping Krishna. She basically, her life, as she understood it, was a love affair with Krishna. And Krishna is, is a quality. It's, it's the person Krishna who has a body which is described as being like a dark blue rain cloud, like a monsoon, so the texture of a monsoon cloud. He plays a flute. Those are all gunas. So clearly, she conceives of the absolute as with qualities. But then, the unknown author of this text says that theologically, Saguna people believed, and still do, that between Atman, the soul, and Paramatma, here, the Supreme Soul, and here you have a misfired definition. Here, the Sanskrit parama can, carries approximately the same meaning as Latin trans, not trance, like trans dancing, but just trans. So, trans, by the way, is a Latin noun or prefix meaning across, beyond, and anyway, I won't go into a lot of technical Sanskrit, but the conclusion is that uh, paramatma, the word parama really means supreme. And so Paramatma really means, in the ultimate sense, the ultimate soul, the supreme soul, God, as opposed to an individual soul, us. We are just sort of ordinary souls. But there's a supreme soul. So, anyway, according to this, Saguna people believe that upon death, the Atman and the Paramatman will combine, will combine, just as a pot filled with water is placed in a pond, and if the pot breaks, the water inside the Atman, because the wall of the pot here is your body, the, you know, your form, and at the time of death, when the body is no more, that's the pot breaking, the water inside, the Atman, your soul, will combine with the water outside, the Paramatma, the Supreme Soul, 
Well, not exactly. That's not exactly what many people believe. I mean, there is there's there's a combining in the sense of yoga. Yoga means to join, to combine. However, on the spiritual platform, according to this personalist view, we remain individual. As, as I explained from the Bhagavad Gita, Natvevaham Chatu Nasam Natom and so on, that we are eternally individual souls. We have always been individual. We always will be individual souls, and God is an individual soul. And also, I've quoted from the Upanishads, verses like Nityo Nityanam, which appears in several important Upanishads, that there are many, there's a plurality of eternal souls. So I just wanted to clear that up. But I'm going to use that also as a little preface to get into the, uh, well, a few more main customers. So, this gets into, this gets into the whole Vedanta issue which really kept people awake at night, I mean the Vedantists. And that is the Veda versus the Veda. Veda in Sanskrit means difference, and, well, a Veda is the opposite, non-difference. So we have these three entities, there's three things, and trying to figure out how they fit or don't fit together is the whole essence of Indian intellectual history, or Vedanta. And the one thing is God. Another thing is the soul. There's God, the soul, and then there's matter, the material world. These are called the tattvas, the, the tattva triad, the three fundamental real things. Well, for some people. So there's God, the soul, and matter. And uh, so Aveda means that you think ultimately there's no difference. First of all, as far as matter is concerned, like your desk, uh, your shirt, whatever, dinosaurs long ago... All these material things are really just Brahman. That's Shankar's position. It's Abeda, no difference. It's no difference. It's just all the same. And if anything looks different to you, if you think you see different colors, if you think you see different colors, different shapes, different people, different anything, you're just not seeing clearly. When you really open your eyes, when you're enlightened, you'll see there are not different colors, no different shapes, no different people, no different anything. That's a stretch. Anyway, that's a Veda. That's a Veda. And Veda would say that these things are fundamentally different. So you get a dualism. That God is different from souls. There's this huge, unbreachable gulf. God is way up there, and we're way down here. And as far as matter, I mean, not to speak of matter, as far as dead matter, that is so ungodly. That is so ungodly dead matter. It is so different from God. It is so absolutely different from God that to even suggest that God could appear in a material form like a, a deity, an idol is, is blasphemous. It's blasphemous because matter is so scuzzy. I don't know if you still understand that word. Anyway, it's so <laughs> yes. <coughs> So, matter is just so bad and it's so nasty that it's offensive. Never mind things like burning bushes and other epiphanies in the Old Testament. We they forget about those. But in any case, so, uh, so I'll read something from page 163 about this. And this is going to get into, believe it or not, this whole thing of Rupa Goswami and Chaitanya and the Bhakti theology of the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, because they deal with all these issues. They have a very strong answer to all these points. So, many strands within Abrahamic religious traditions, such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Islam, 
have strong sentiments against their hostility toward, strong sentiments against depictions of God whose transcendence ought not to be compromised. Depictions of God. Obviously, we're down here in the material world, so if you're going to start depicting, you're going to have to use things like, well, paint, a brush, or a chisel, stone, or whatever medium you've got, you know, little like computer stuff. Because otherwise, how do you depict? If you're down here, what else are you going to depict with? It's not some material thing. So they have strong sentiments against this. Like, don't even think about it. Like, you pick up a little brush in your hand, it's like, you know, drop it. Drop it, stranger. Don't even try to depict God in any visible form. God who's transcendent, who's transcendent, he's beyond this world, ought not to be compromised through such portrayals. Furthermore, their theological doctrines, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, I mean, mainstream, obviously within all these three traditions, there were mystics, there were philosophers that had different views, but this is kind of like the mainstream idea. Their doctrines do not proclaim God to be embodied within the creation. God is not embodied. So, Here's one way you can think about it. Granting that, let's say, putting aside monism for a moment, and granting that there is a difference between God and the world, say, the material world, like this jacket of mine, which you've all come to admire as the course progressed. Like this jacket of mine uh, is fundamentally, in some ways, different from God. <laughs> this... You know, or, or, or whatever, like some material thing, the ceiling of this uh, very luxurious room. The ceiling of this room is somehow different from God. It's somehow different from God. So now the question is, is very simple. If somehow or other you see God in this world, like you look up at the ceiling and see God is present there, or you see the materials of the ceiling as somehow, in some way, originally coming from God and having their own little junior divinity, so, if you see God somehow in this world, are you degrading God? Are you dragging God down to the level of matter? Or, are you exalting the world? In other words, are you restoring everything back to its original glory, that everything is part of God? And so, if we look at the Abrahamic, from Abraham, traditions, coming from the Middle East, uh, we find that Basically, most of the creation uh, gets the booby prize. In the sense that most souls take... Well, I mean, for, most people that ever lived on earth were not either Christians or Muslims or Jews. Most of the people that ever lived on earth. Which means that most of the people that ever lived, you know, their, their history, they're basically in a very bad place right now, if they exist at all. If they exist at all, they're in a very bad situation. As far as the material world, it's hopelessly godless. It is hopelessly, matter is hopelessly godless. And, and so you have basically all of matter and a huge chunk of all the souls that ever showed up down here that are really just written off. They just don't make it. So you have this uh, somewhat violent, somewhat uh, aggressive duality. Whereas... I would say, in general, in general, the spirit of India was inclusive. Not merely including, not merely including, let's say, different religions, 
but just including the universe itself, the physical universe, somehow is, is a winner also in its own way. Because even the physical universe is the glory of God. And there's a chapter in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 11 actually, where Krishna identifies himself with all the glorious things of this world, saying that they are simply manifestations of my power. So all souls eventually get redeemed, and the material world itself is just another aspect of God's glory, of God's power. And so everything is included, nothing is lost. Our evil deeds are not good, but that's simply a mistaken or flawed relationship between ourselves and ourselves, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat matter, the way we treat other people. So it's a flawed relationship, a misunderstanding that all the, the actual things that exist, such as matter and souls, all of them are ultimately good, and all, everything is ultimately part of God. So it's, in that sense, it's a very positive view of everything. Although, again, we can misuse things in this world and other people, and that's bad. But the things themselves are not intrinsically bad. For example, let's say someone takes a gun and shoots another person, an innocent person. I mean, obviously, that's an evil act, to, sh- I think, to shoot an innocent person. I think that's non-controversially evil. That's an e- However, the gun is not evil. The gun is not evil. I mean, sometimes we get a little carried away, like, you may, you know, sometimes, like, we bump our head on something, we may punch it. But, uh, I mean, that's irrational. So, the gun itself is not evil. The bullet's not evil. The act was evil because of the, of the quality of it. Now, Bonnie and Clyde. Dualism. Uh, this is my attempt to be amusing. Dualism says that, like in these Abrahamic traditions, the material world is just really separated from God. It's a totally different kind of thing. In no way is it exalted, in no way is it glorious, it's just, it's just God-less. And therefore it's very offensive to, to think that God could somehow show up in, this, in some physical form. <coughs> And also monism. Now monism doesn't... I mean, think back to Shankara. Monism says, Shankara's version of monism, that the world is illusory, but, uh, but somehow it's really Brahman. So it's not bad, but what you think it is, the colors, the shapes, the different people, that's ultimately all a delusion. So interestingly, although they're going to do different things with the world, both the monists and dualists really want to do away with the world. Either by saying that it's a delusion or simply by saying it's godless and just, you know, it's just, it's just a godless creation. But, not, but none of them are really comfortable with the world. Now the beta-beta position, which you all studied, giving up all other pleasurable pursuits, the beta-beta philosophy actually combines these two things, combines these two things and says that the world is not God, but it's part of God. It's not bad. It really exists. All the beta-beta schools say that this world really exists. <clears throat> and that my jacket really is my jacket, at least for now. It's temporary. It's not eternal. But it's really there. Right now, it's really there. And even if it's changing, uh, remember Nagarjuna, everything's changing, so everything's empty of real identity. But what, at any given moment, it's something. At any given moment, my jacket, your jacket, your body, at any given moment, it is something. It's really there. Whatever it is at that moment, it's really there. 
And uh, so the world can be exalted. Now, because the world comes from God and is ultimately part of God, it can be engaged. It can be engaged spiritually. The world can be connected to God. In fact, it always is connected to God, otherwise it wouldn't exist. But it can be connected very powerfully through the process of, of service to God, of loving service. And there's the word yoga. Well, a, you didn't know that, did you? The word yoga. So the word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root huge, which means to connect, unite, etc., etc., etc. And from this word huge, also there's the word yukta, which means united or joined. And so yoga means to link. This means linked. You know, the idea of being linked. So the world can all be yukta. So, so now I want to... Uh, any question on that? Because if not, I want to get into Rupa Goswami. And, and yes? Um, you were saying that in general, India's attitude was more inclusive of yeah. the world. And that that is only really um, justified by the Veda Veda philosophy. But it seems like, from what we've read, that the Veda Veda philosophy didn't really come to the foreground uh, until later on in Indian history? And might not have been uh, well, well, Vedanta. Vedanta doesn't come to the foreground until later. So it's not that before Vedanta no one was thinking about anything. And therefore you find even the early Upanishads, Yatovayimani, Bhutani, Jayanti, Jatani, Jivanti, and so on, that all creatures in this world come from that absolute Brahman. And the Buddha literally also refers to the world itself. The world is Brahman. I mean, the famous early Upanishadic declaration, Sarvam Kovidam Brahma, this whole world is Brahman. Mm-hmm. Now, the Vedantas come along, say Shankara comes along, mm-hmm. and wants to do something with those statements in the Upanishads, but long before Shankara, I mean, I mean, thousands of years before Shankara, people, that we already have statements that everything in this world is somehow spiritual. So, does, does that leave room for, for a monism that might include the world? Unlike Shankaran's monism? Well, in this world there's colors. Like, I can see just by looking out that everyone here is dressed in different colors. That means that, you know, you're all, you all like colors to some extent. And there's different colors, I mean, people comb their hair in different ways, people wear different kinds of shoes, you sit in different seats, everyone kind of finds where they want to sit. And people take different classes, so we're all into... So what do you do with all this variety? If you say it's a monism, if you say it's monism, what do you do with the fact that people here are dressed in different colors? What do you do with that? And what do you do with the fact that the colors are beautiful? I mean, the fact that colors look nice. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that we're individuals and that people have different personalities and that it's actually fun to be around a lot of interesting people? Like, what do you do with that if it's all one? What do you do with the people, the colors, the places, the music? The fact that you don't get music until you have, well, unless you're like really postmodern. You don't have music until you get a, you know, different notes. Then you get a ratio. You know, you, maybe you get like a major chord, one, three, five, or a minor chord, you know, diminished third or whatever. And so it's by these ratio, ratios of notes that you start to get music. You can put the notes together and get a chord. You can separate, string them out, and, you know, and get a, uh, a melody. So, what do you do with that? 
mean, if I turned on my radio and it was just like the same note, it would be basically, a, you know, like a what they call an air raid alert or something, rather than music. I mean, there is monism built into the beta beta because it says everything is ultimately one, even as it's different, because it's all Brahman. So I want to get into Rupa Goswami. You've probably read about his biography. Uh, so one thing I wanted to say, getting into Rupa, Gos- Rupa Goswami, is that, I just have to note this down, that in bhakti, in these, in these Indian bhakti traditions, God is more relaxed. It's not like this super... I have to use the word up tight. God, where like one wrong move, one, one wrong theological move, one graven image, and, you, and you're just going to be obliterated. I mean, in the whole bhakti tradition, God is just relaxed. He has a sense of humor. It's like, you know, there's a bit of the whatever in him. So, God is more relaxed, flexible, flexible, playful. Playful. He creatively, God creatively engages his creation within religious and spiritual life, precisely because conditioned souls are materially... No, to be conditioned. Because we're down here, this is the idea in Bhakti, God knows we're down here, it's like he's going to give us a break. Okay, right now, you can see the material world. That's just where you're at right now. Okay, so here, we'll come up with some spiritual paraphernalia that you can see and relate to that gives you a chance to engage yourself. So instead of just walking down the street looking at other people's bodies for whatever reason... You can look at a form of the divine and, and engage in yoga. You can engage your eyes in yoga. You can engage your ears in yoga. You can start to connect yourself <coughs> to Brahman by perceptible objects. It is a it's a gesture of goodwill, allowing us in our present condition to start to connect. And because matter is the energy of God, God can appear in his own energy. That's the idea. And it's just being a nice guy. It's God being a nice guy and giving us a break. That's how it's basically understood. As opposed to some horrible blasphemy and thinking that God is dead matter and you know, all these horrific... It's just being a nice guy. It's just being flexible. So, uh, now, God is conceived of the word Bhagavan. I want to talk about that. Uh, as in Bhagavad Gita. Uh, because that's a very, very common name for the Lord, Bhagavan, Bhagavan. In fact, in the Gita, every time Krishna speaks, begins to speak, the Gita says, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, you know, the Lord said. So, the word Bhagavan is really uh, two things. Bhaga, without going into a long technical etymology, which I think is interesting, but it means... What? Well... <laughs> no. And Bhagavan means one who possesses. So Bhagavan means one who possesses Bhagavan, which means something like opulence. And theologians in the Bhakti tradition analyze that there are basically six opulences or more. It's just like to give a little list that you can meditate on. Six qualities that God possesses infinitely, which are um, wealth. God is, has infinite opulence, infinite wealth, uh, beauty, power, knowledge, fame, renunciation. So that if you think about it, in this world, we're attracted to someone. Let's say someone is like a billionaire. You may not like the person, but if a billionaire walks into the room, you know, he or she does turn heads. That's just the real world. 
and or someone who's incredibly beautiful or like super strong, like let's say like some Terminator type entity who sort of you know rode a motorcycle into this classroom. <laughs> so, or someone's incredibly intelligent. So these are opulences now. Think of the difference, well, not the difference, think of the fact that in English you have these, you have the word traction, right? Which means to pull, like a tractor. And then you add a prefix to it, and you get the word attraction. Very interesting. You know, the same thing in Sanskrit, by the way, same thing in German, uh, since we're preceded by German class. Sium basically means traction, and then ansium, attraction. And uh, the same thing in, in Sanskrit, uh, krish, the root krish means to pull, so krishti means traction, agriculture, you know, pulling the plow. But then again, krishna means attracting. So what is the relationship between tractors and being attractive? It's very obvious. <laughs> see my new tractor. The... Um, <laughs> The relation is that to be attractive is to exert mental traction. Something is attractive if it has mental traction. It pulls your consciousness. And so these things like beauty, intelligence, power, they just pull the mind. They have mental traction. And therefore they're attractive. A mental attractor. So the idea is that God is infinitely attractive. And all the attractive qualities that we seek, like, you know, people want to be good-looking. Most people, given their choice, would push the good-looking button. <laughs> or people want to be strong. They want to be, you know, some people want to be intelligent. And um, powerful or famous. A lot of people want to be famous. So, and we're attracted to people that have these qualities, and we would like to have these qualities ourselves. So the idea that Rupa is teaching is that God possesses all these attractors infinitely, and therefore God is all attractive. So to love God is not just like, do the right thing, be pious, love God, bless you. So loving God is not just like, try to work yourself up into a passionate, emotional state. The idea rather is, that if we take away all of our emotional issues that we have with God as an authority figure, and if we could actually see God as God really is, we would be absolutely attractive. Because all, everything that we find, so that if we find something in this world beautiful, strong, anything you find attractive, you're actually being attracted to God. That's actually a level of God consciousness. But we forget or deny or don't realize that that attractive thing, whatever you find beautiful in this world, is actually a manifestation of God's beauty. And so at every moment we are God conscious, we just don't know it. Because everything that we see is a manifestation of God. So uh, that's one point that's made by Rupa. Any, any question on that? So it's, yes. It's an extent of being aware of how, how you're seeing the world. Well, seeing the world as it really is. Yeah, that's According to this idea, seeing the world as it really is. But the, and, and the reason, according to Rupa and, and all these theologians, and it's a whole school of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the reason we can't see God right now is because when we see a beautiful thing, rather than that beauty inspiring us to love the maker of that beauty, 
It inspires us to try to possess it, to try to enjoy it, to exploit it. And so we have an attitude problem. That when we see the beauty of the creation, we try to get our hands on it, to exploit it, to enjoy it, rather than wanting to engage that beautiful thing in loving service. In other words, to, to reconnect to its source, the source of our existence, the source of the existence of that beautiful thing. In yoga, so that you see, let's say you see a beautiful person that you find very attractive. You know, it's all the right chemistry. So, one attitude would be, oh my God, how do I get my hands on this thing? And that's kind of, you know, materialism. In other words, I'm the enjoyer. Sanskrit, da, that's the Sanskrit word. I am the enjoyer, and so if any attractive thing is meant for my enjoyment. The spiritual attitude, according to this philosophy, would be, that's a very beautiful person. I would like to somehow or other help that person to advance spiritually or, or, or somehow engage that person for the pleasure of God. So it's seeing yourself. It's like if you're married and you have children and you're a good parent, instead of just thinking like, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Suddenly you start thinking about what's good for your child. So it's sort of a shifting of your concern to God out of love. That's the nature of love. When you love someone, you begin to think of that person's needs and desires, not simply your own. So it's just a different way of looking at the world. And, and then when we see the world that way, according to Rupa Goswami, sort of the veil falls away, the curtain opens, and you actually see reality as it is, because it's, the, the, it's precisely the desire to exploit the creation of God that prevents us from seeing it as the creation of God. Just as the more, let's say, a person wants to exploit another person, financially, sexually, the more you cannot see that person really as another person. Because if you see another person just as, I want to get money from you, I want to get sexual satisfaction from you, you can't really see that person as a complete person in themselves. You see that person as an object of your enjoyment. So because we, we, of our material desires, we see this physical world as an object of our enjoyment, and therefore we cannot see what it really is. And so that's, that's what Rupa That's the psychology of all this. In some, you discuss the ontology, and that's the psychology of it.